So this morning, uh, we are going to be in Mark chapter 12, verses 28 through 34. Mark chapter 12, verses 28 through 34. And the title of this sermon is The Great Commandment. Mark 12, 28 through 34. I'm sure most of you are familiar with what are known as Cliff's Notes. How many of you are familiar with Cliff Notes? Shame on you. Um, no, I, I love Cliff's Notes. Well, uh, according to Wikipedia, um, if you don't know, Cliff's Notes says this, says there are a series of student study guides. The guides present, uh, present and create literary and other works in a pamphlet form or online. This is fascinating. Cliff's Notes was started by a Nebraska native Clifton Hilgess in 1958. Um, by 1964, sales reached 1 million notes annually. It's amazing. Um, IDG Books purchased Cliff's Notes in 1998 for $14.2 million. In other words, this guy and his wife in Nebraska from their basement were able to become multimillionaires by reading and summarizing books in a helpful way. Today, we're going to see Jesus do the same thing, but with the Bible. So what is the summary of the entire book? Let's dive into our text. Mark chapter 12, verse 28 through 34. This is the word of the Lord. And one of the scribes came up, and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them well, asked him, Which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and that there is no other beside him. And to love him with all the heart, and with all the understanding, and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself, is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when they saw uh, when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Our four points for today's text are these. Number one, the kingdom of God. Number two, loving God. Number three, loving neighbor. And number four, trusting Jesus. So point one, the kingdom of God. Uh, before we move any further, I, I want us to see something very important and foundational to this text. Uh, at the end of these verses, we'll see Jesus say, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And we'll discuss that soon enough. But we need to understand that that's what this whole section is actually about. The kingdom of God. From the beginning of the book of Mark, this has been a key message for Jesus. 
Mark chapter 1, verse 15, it says, Jesus came and he said, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Mark chapter 4, verse 11, And he said to them, To you has been given the secrets of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables. Mark 9, 1, And he said to them, Truly I say to you, There are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Mark 10, 14 and 15. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. We know that this was the very height of the Sermon on the Mount, actually. Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, Jesus says, But seek first, what? The kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Even more, this was a theme of Jesus' preaching even after his resurrection. Acts chapter 1, verse 3 This is after he's died on the cross, been buried, and rose again. Acts 1, verse 3, He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days. What's he doing? Speaking about the kingdom of God. This is just a sampling. This phrase, kingdom of God, appears 117 times in the Gospels alone. It's not a stretch to say that the kingdom of God was central to Jesus' preaching. Now, what is the kingdom of God? I hear a lot of people, especially in the last several years, speak about the kingdom in fuzzy or unclear, undefined ways. They say things like, "Uh, I'm not much into church or religion. I'm just more about the kingdom. As if the church is somehow not part of the kingdom. Sounds really pious, huh? They're the enlightened ones. They're about the kingdom. Don't get me wrong, being kingdom-minded is a good thing. As we saw in the Sermon on the Mount, it's actually what we should seek first, Jesus says. But if it's not defined, we may be seeking something other than what Jesus taught about the kingdom. In fact, when we don't define the term, we usually end up just pouring our own meaning in. Make no mistake, Jesus believed and taught that there was such a thing as the kingdom of God. So, what is it? Uh, Up front, uh, I believe that the kingdom is a central theme and unifying thread that ties together the entire Bible. With that in mind, uh, know this up front, that there have been many, many, many large books written about this theme. Uh, It can get very complex, but it's also very simple. Uh, In straightforward terms, the kingdom of God is God's people, in God's place, under God's rule. God's people, in God's place, under God's rule. Or as Patrick Schreiner says, the kingdom is the king's power over the king's people in the king's place. Think about it. 
What do we have in the garden? God ruling over his people in his place. But they rebelled against his rule there, didn't they? So they're expelled from his place. Yet he promised them in Genesis 3.15 that he would do what? He would send a king who would crush the head of Satan, restoring that rule. How about in Canaan? promised land. God prepared a land. He gave them the law. God ruling over his people in his place. How about the church? God ruling over his people with his word in his place. How about Revelation chapter 4? At the center of it all is what? A throne, a king in heaven being worshipped by everyone, God's people, in God's place, under God's rule. The king's power over the king's people in the king's place. That's what the Bible means by the kingdom of God. And it's central to Jesus' preaching. So, keep that in mind as we walk through this text. Point two, loving God. Look with me again at verse 28. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he, meaning Jesus, answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? We noted the last three weeks that Jesus' enemies sent three different volleys of attacks at him, right? One by one, Jesus soundly defeats them. Here comes another questioner. This one appears a little bit different. I believe that unlike the others before him, that this is an honest question from an honest man. It seems like this guy was kind of hanging around on the fringe of the previous conversations and just kind of listening out of genuine interest. He heard them all going at Jesus. And he heard Jesus' brilliant responses. Now understand that this guy was a scribe. He was, in essence, a lawyer. He thought about the law all day, every day. This was what he did. So you can see him there on the fringe, hearing these conversations, his wheels turning in his head. Wow, who is this man? They threw some hard questions at him, and he answered them well. He's intrigued. So what does he do? He asks a question of his own. Now, according to one scholar, the rabbinic tradition had identified 613 commands in the law. 365 of those were negative prohibitions. 248 were positive commissions. So 613 commands in the law. So... I asked the question, which commandment is the most important of all, Jesus? We've both clearly studied the whole book. What's the Cliff Notes version? Boil it down for me. What's the chief thing? How will Jesus answer? Look at verses 29 and 30. Jesus answered, the most important is, Hear, O Israel, 
The Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. So Jesus begins by quoting what's known as the Shema. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. This was the passage that devout Jews would have recited every morning and every evening. Shema Israel, Adonai Eloheinu. Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. I want us to notice that both Jesus and Deuteronomy begin with the statement of who God is. This is central to any command that God gives. Defining who God is. Not who we want him to be or how we feel about him. Who he is, is of first importance. Each time that the Shema was spoken, it directed attention, not to some impersonal, undefined force, but to a specifically defined God. The Lord. Yahweh. Any worship of God or obedience to his commands must start there. If we're worshiping or if we're obeying the God of our own imaginations, we're not actually worshiping God or obeying him. This is the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the God of the living that we learned about last week, the Lord God. He's unique. He's an exclusive God. He's one. We're God alone. This is fundamental to our faith. And Jesus tells us to love that God specifically. What does it mean to love that God? The context of Deuteronomy 6 is key here. Quoting the Shema from Deuteronomy 6. What does Deuteronomy 6 say about loving or obeying God? Deuteronomy 6 verses 1 and 2. So this is right before the Shema. It says, Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life. Fearing the Lord, keeping his commandments all the days of your life. Verse 7 says, You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. Verse 14 says, You shall not go after other gods, the God of the peoples who are around you. So loving God isn't just a feeling, is it? There are tangibles. Revere him. Obey him. Teach your kids his ways. Don't worship other gods. And Jesus tells us that we're to love that God in a holistic way. Look at the words here. Back in our text, Mark 12, verse 30. He says, 
And you shall love the Lord your God. How? With all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. God doesn't want half of your heart or half of your soul or half of your mind or half of your strength. He wants all of it. He wants you to love him with all that you are. First, he says, with all your heart. We've talked about this before. Uh, Scripturally, the heart is the core or root of your entire being. Heart is where everything else flows from. Love God with all your heart. Second, with all of your soul. In other words, with your affections and emotions. With your spirit. Third, with all your mind. Your thought life. We're to love God, with, as one commentator says, with the fullness of our understanding. I remember right before I went to college, uh, several well-meaning people coming up to me and saying, hey, be careful of that head knowledge stuff. It can lead you away from the faith. It always puzzled me when I heard people say that. I understood what they were saying, but it just never really set well with me. Well, after college, I got to hear... Vodi Bakum actually speak on this issue. And what he said made so much sense to me. He told a very similar story to mine. Before he went to school, he had so many well-meaning people come up and warn him about head knowledge. His response? He said, what if you asked me when my wife's birthday was? And I responded, oh, I don't know. I really don't want any head knowledge about her. I just love her with my heart. Okay. Well, what's her favorite food? Nope. Nope. I don't want any head knowledge about her. I told you. I I just love her with my heart. Eventually, you'd question what it meant for me to love her if I really didn't know anything about her. Our minds aren't meant to be separate from our hearts. They actually fuel each other. The heart, the the core of our being, when we love God with all of it, causes our minds to follow. So is, is your thought life pure? Is your mind disciplined and trained on all that the scriptures teach us about God? Love God with all of your mind. It's not just for academics. Finally, love God with all your strength, our bodily power. Now, I want to be clear. Even though I'm trying to define each of these aspects, I don't think that Jesus is doing a psychoanalysis of human personality here. There's actually a lot of theological debate on whether man is a two-part being or a three-part being, etc. I don't think that's what Jesus is teaching, one way or the other here. I think the point is, we're being called to love God with all that we are. 
I love Kent Hughes here. He says, It does not take much of a man to be a believer, but it takes all that there is of him. I think that's Jesus' point. So, the scribe asked Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? And his first answer is, love God, the God of the Bible, with everything. But, Jesus isn't done. Point three Loving neighbor. Look at verse 31. He goes on. He says, the second is this. So this guy got more than he bargained for. Jesus gives him two. The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. So Jesus started with the Shema of Deuteronomy 6. Then he tacks on Leviticus 19 verse 18. Leviticus 19.18 says, You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Notice that neither Leviticus nor Jesus says, Love your neighbor as he or she loves you. That's not what he says. He says, Love your neighbor as yourself. And don't forget, when Jesus uses the word neighbor, he doesn't mean just those who live next to you. In Luke chapter 10, he makes that clear. He means all of humanity, even our enemies. So, love your neighbor as yourself. I want to be clear, this this isn't Jesus telling us to be selfish. We know that in Mark chapter 8, he's already told us to deny self, to deny ourselves and to die to ourselves. Mark 8. Here's what I believe he's saying. When we rightly understand ourselves, when we rightly understand ourselves, we have a healthy self-love because we realize that we're created in the image of God. And created in God's wisdom and goodness. I'll say that again. When we rightly understand ourselves, we have a healthy self-love because, two things, we realize that we're created in the image of God and created in God's wisdom and goodness. This is a wonderful women's ministry verse, but we're going to kind of take it back from women's ministry for a bit. This is for everyone. Psalm 139, verses 13 and 14. It says, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you. Why? For I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. When we rightly understand that truth, that we're fearfully and wonderfully made, we're not selfish, but we do love ourselves. Then that self-love gets pointed at others. Do you see that? Sinclair Ferguson says this. He says, to love God himself implies that we will also love everything which reflects him in any way. It would be inconsistent to love him, but not those who bear his image. 
In this sense, each man should have a proper love and respect for all that God has made him. So, as with defining what it means to love God, let's not just leave it nebulous or undefined. What does it mean to love your neighbor as yourself? Again, the context of Leviticus 19 that Jesus is quoting here does a lot to actually spell this out. D.A. Carson has insightfully noted that in Leviticus 19, loving your neighbor as yourself means that you will care for the poor, not steal, not lie, be fair in business dealings, care for the deaf, care for the blind, deal justly with all, avoid slander, not jeopardize the life of your neighbor, not harbor hatred against your brother, rebuke your neighbor when necessary for his and your good, and not take revenge or bear a grudge against others. Again, love is a lot more than a feeling, huh? Yes, it is. It's tangible action. So what is the greatest command? Jesus says, love God and love neighbor. Love God, love neighbor. I want us to understand what it is that Jesus just did there. Essentially, he took the structure of the Ten Commandments that we read earlier out of Exodus 20, and he used them as a grid for answering this guy's question. Exodus 20. It begins, as we heard earlier, with a statement about who God is. Exodus chapter 20, verse 2. He says, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. This is who I am. Then he gives them commands. This is a side note, but I think it's important. In a right understanding of the gospel, the indicative precedes the imperative. Okay, grammar nerd, what does that mean? The indicative precedes the imperative. A statement of fact comes before a command. Even in the Ten Commandments, how does God begin? He begins with who he is and what he's done. Statement of fact, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Indicative. Statement of fact. Only then does he begin commanding. The same is true of the gospel. Why are we saved from God's just eternal wrath? How can we be saved? We must start with a statement of fact. How can we be saved? Why are we saved from God's wrath? Because Jesus died for my sin and rose from the grave. Statement of fact. Only then do the commands come in response to that. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. God, the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Obeying 
God's commands is vital and it's important. But it's not what saves us. Obeying God's commands is the right response to who God is and what he's done. Back to the Ten Commandments. God starts with who he is and what he's done. Then he gives them two tables of commandments. Any guess what the first table is all about? Commandments concerning God and our vertical relationship with them. No other gods before me. No carved images. Don't take the, name, the Lord's name in vain. Remember the Sabbath. These all fall under the category of loving God. Any long shot guess about what the second table of the Ten Commandments is all about? People, loving neighbor, our horizontal relationship with people or neighbors. Honor your father and mother. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't lie. Don't covet. You see what Jesus did here in Mark? Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? Start with who God is, the Shema. Love God. Love neighbor. Again, I want to draw our attention to these paintings on the wall over here. What Jesus says here in Mark 12 shapes why we exist as a church. Up, in, and out. Up, in, and out. First and foremost, we exist as a church. Up, to love God. To worship Him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And an outflow of that is that we love others. We love others first inside the church. The one another's of the New Testament. 47 of them. So we love God. We love those inside the church. And then out, we love those outside the church. Fulfilling the Great Commission. Going and making disciples of all nations. That's why we exist as a church. It's not a fancy mission statement. There's no complex vision. It's that. Love God and love people. That's why we exist as a church. Some uneducated fishermen, tax collector, and some other nobodies carried it out. And they changed the world. They weren't leadership gurus. They certainly weren't perfect or sinless. But you know what they did? They loved God and they loved people. That's our call. That's the cliff notes of the Bible. It's why we exist. That's what Jesus says to this guy. So how did the scribe respond? Look at verses 32 and 33. And the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all uh, with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. Pretty good, right? 
This is a favorable response. He's not seeking to arrest Jesus like the crew in verse 12. In fact, this guy speaks the truth back to Jesus. He recognizes the truth of Scripture that Jesus has just spoken. He actually affirms monotheism. He also makes the connection from 1 Samuel 15, verse 22. 1 Samuel 15, 22, and Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. Proverbs 12, 3, to do righteousness and justice is more acceptable to the Lord than sacrifice. Hosea 6.6, For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Loving God, loving others is superior to religious ritual. The scribe gets all of that. He affirms that Jesus is right. And that makes Jesus' response all the more shocking. Look at verse 34. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. You're not far from the kingdom of God. Jesus doesn't say, You're in the kingdom of God. He says, You're not far. But as the saying goes, close only counts in horseshoes and hand grenades. Not far is not the same thing as in. You see, this guy was a scribe, as we said earlier. He had a very good comprehension of the scriptures. Jesus even acknowledges him as wise. But there was still a step for him to take. God's people, in God's place, under God's rule. This guy still saw Jesus as a teacher, but not yet as Savior and Lord. And this leads to our fourth and final point. Point four, trusting Jesus. Now, I'm not sure about you, but when I hear Jesus say that I'm to love God, not halfway, but with all of my heart, all of my soul, all of my mind, and all of my strength, and that I'm to love my neighbor as myself, my first move isn't to say, yep, that's me, giddy up. No. My first reaction is, I don't. I don't always love God with everything I have. I almost always love myself more than others. In light of that, R.C. Sproul asks us this question. Think about this. What is the most serious sin of all? What is the most serious sin of all? Murder? Adultery? Idolatry, maybe? Then R.C. Sproul goes on to say this. He says, it seems to me that if the great commandment is to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, The great transgression is the failure to keep this commandment. To be honest, 
That should scare all of us. None of us has kept this commandment. None of us. And herein lies the scribe's issue. He seems to think that he has. He's almost like the rich young ruler who says, Teacher, all of these I've kept since my youth, loving God perfectly, loving my neighbor as myself. Yep, done it. None of us have kept the great commandment, except for one, Jesus. He did. He he loved God with every ounce of his heart, soul, mind, and strength. He he never failed to love his neighbor flawlessly. And in doing that, he obeyed and fulfilled the law of God perfectly. So understand this. Because none of us have kept the great commandment, we've sinned against a holy, righteous, just, eternal God. And the penalty for that is death. That's what each and every one of us, myself included, deserve. Jesus went to the cross and paid that penalty for us. He not only took the nails through his hands and feet, he absorbed the full amount of God's just wrath on our behalf. But that's not all. Not only was our debt paid, bringing our spiritual bank account back to zero, he filled our account with his righteousness. He loved God. He loved neighbor perfectly. And that's what gets credited to us through repentance and faith in Christ. That's the difference between not far from the kingdom and in the kingdom. Do you trust Christ for your righteousness? Is he your sovereign king? Only that can get you into the kingdom. And then that fuels a life of following in Jesus' footsteps, loving God, loving neighbor. If you're not a Christian, We're pleading with you today. Repent and believe in Jesus. Become one of God's people in God's place, under God's rule, with him as king. Enter the kingdom of God. And if you are a Christian, rest in Christ's righteousness. Then, joyfully and freely, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Let's pray.